This morning, I invite you to open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to begin that chapter there, the third chapter in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, the third and last chapter. We're nearing the end of that study in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. This morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. So I invite you to follow along with me as we read that passage there. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log In your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest you trample them underfoot and lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. To you, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will, be op- it will be opened. And which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know what to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning for your help as we approach these teachings. Lord, that we would come to understanding, but more than understanding, Lord, that your spirit would work transformation. Lord, this... Faith is what is necessary and something that we often lack. Clarity, an eye to see. We are lacking. This passage itself reminds us. Lord, you who see perfectly, clearly, who is the judge, you who judge justly, we pray that you would work surgery among your people this morning. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning, I don't know that I can make an argument that the opening words of this passage are the best-known words in the whole of Scripture. I don't think I can make that case. But I do think that there is a strong case that this is the most often quoted verse by non-Christians against Christians. I think there's a pretty strong case for that. As such, I think that we could also make a strong case that this verse at the beginning of our passage this morning is the most misunderstood verse by both non-Christians and Christians alike. Our passage this morning begins with the words, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, that can be taken at least two ways, maybe two ends of the spectrum here, uh, that this 
passage, 1 through 12, is a number of, of pithy teachings, nice parables, but are largely disconnected from each other, just sort of thrown in as a grab bag at the end of the sermon, such that we have often in the past taken their meaning to stand on their own, okay, as Proverbs to be reflected on individually. Or, as we'll do this morning, these verses and all the verses that are around them can be understood as a a whole teaching that, that once understood together, it gives us a far more clear and nuanced picture of what it means not to judge. What it means to to see and to understand the world rightly. That's really what the the whole of the section, particularly our teaching in verses 1 through 12, are driving at. And so let us consider these passages together. We'll do it this way, uh, a bit of an outline so you can know up front the way that we'll walk through our passage this morning. We're going to begin in verse 1, and I believe that verse 1 is really the teaching. And and Jesus has done this throughout the whole of the sermon, so we shouldn't be surprised that he does it again. He sort of lays out a teaching in in a very clear and concise statement. Judge not that you be not judged. That's the teaching. And then in verses 2 through 6, he speaks to the family how the family, the disciples, are together to apply that teaching. Then, in verses 7 through 11, he turns to apply it to the Father, the relationship of the children with the Father. And then verse 12 offers us a sort of summary to this section. He's crafted each one of the major sections of the Sermon on the Mount in that very way. And I believe he's done it again. So, this morning, let's begin by looking at the teaching. The teaching, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been calling us to see rightly, and he's been increasing that, that language that you remember a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the evil eye versus the eye that sees rightly the world that is around him. Jesus has been calling us to see rightly. He brought us face to face with the law in chapter 5. He brought us to see that according to the way of the kingdom, we fall short of its righteousness. He taught us to see the presence of God in chapter 6. He brought us to see our daily dependence upon him in both our walk in faith and our walk seeking provision in this world. That If we see the world rightly, if we see, have a right worldview, we will come to understand that there is a Father in heaven. In chapter 7 now, Jesus brings us face to face with reality again. And he's calling us to see rightly. He's bringing us to see how we are to live with humility given our unrighteousness and our utter dependence upon the Father. What does it look like to, to see rightly that reality and live Accordingly, so the passage begins with what is a simple teaching. It can be taken at face value. Judge not that you be not judged. One commentator, Jonathan Pennington, he writes this. If one has a condemning attitude toward others, this will be one's experience of the world. And if one has a welcoming, accepting attitude, this will be one's Experience of the world, sort of just a proverbial general statement, right? Richard Baxter, 
a Puritan preacher. He references this chapter in a chapter entitled, Holiness is Best for All Societies. And this passage, as as an explanation of righteous walking, is best for all people. All people, Christians and non-Christians alike, could learn from what this teaching has in a very general fashion. This is a great teaching about our experience of the world, and that is why it is so very often quoted and applied. But it's more than just a general statement. It's more than just a, a general teaching about a welcoming, non-judgmental attitude. Jesus is telling us two things right up front with this statement. The first thing is this. We are condemned by our own standard of judgment. Judge not that you be not judged, for with that measure, you'll be judged. We are condemned by our own standard. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verse 1. This would be a good verse to write in the margin of your Bible to, to bring us clarity about the whole of the Scripture's teaching regarding judgment. Therefore, in Romans 2, 1, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, Practice the very same things. The religious and the unreligious alike stand condemned by their own measure of judgment. C.S. Lewis speaks to this in great detail and in a compelling manner in his book, Mere Christianity. We encourage you to go there and look it up more. That measure with which you use to measure, you yourself will be measured. We have a, a sense that this is True, and yet we move forward and on in judgment. Probably the simplest illustration I can think of comes to my mind quickly. It's odd to me how often I think of this, but elementary school, right? Standing in the lunch line. You know what I'm talking about, and you're standing there, and the kid cuts up front, and everybody who is behind the kid stands up in self-righteous judgment of the cutter. Everybody knows how wicked That kid is, at least everyone who's behind him, do. It was a very rare thing that I ever saw anybody in front of him complain about his unrighteousness. I never saw that kid complain, well, until he was behind a cutter, right? Anybody have any experiences? Now a couple of you guys are homeschooled, and you're like, yeah, my brother cuts in front of me in line too, right? Well, how often, really every day, When I'm driving on I-95, I see someone speeding up, dangerously slipping between you and a a vehicle that you're safely following at a safe distance. And again, there he is. There's that guy. There's the cutter. Good thing I've never done that, uh, or else I might be judged by that measure. You know what I'm talking about. This is not a complicated teaching. And by the standard of our measurement, by the standard of our judgment, God does not even have to come down with a law. We already have. God doesn't even need to condemn. We already have. We're condemned by our own standard of judgment. We ought to know that we are sinners. Jesus' teaching here reveals a vicious cycle of self-condemnation. What a horrible way to live. What a glorious way is the kingdom, the way of the king. 
The second thing that this passage teaches us very clearly is there is a judge who judges justly. There is a judge. He judges justly. The point is not that there is no judgment at all. Don't judge lest you be judged because there is no judgment. That's not the point. There is a judgment and the measure will be at a minimum the measure by which you measured. The point is that ultimately we are not that judge. The caution is that we ought not to judge, for one day we too will be judged. Do you hear that? There is still a judge. 1 Peter 2, 23, speaking of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Why? Because no judgment, no judgment, right? When he suffered, he did not threaten. Why? Well, no judgment, right? No but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Why was Jesus free to not revile? Why was Jesus free to not threaten? Because Jesus knew there was a judge, and the judge judges justly. Consider James. James often is a a beautiful reflection on the Sermon on the Mount. James 4.12 There is only one lawgiver and judge. How many? One. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We can neither save nor destroy. We don't have that power. We don't have that authority. But what a beautiful thing that he who judges justly is able to not only destroy and condemn, but he is also able to save. And this opens up something for us, that judgment is not one-dimensional. There's both a positive and a negative dimension to judgment. The judge is able to save and to destroy. Let's ask this question. What does it mean to judge? Sadly, the meaning of the word judge has been pinched. It's been squeezed. All the flavor of its meaning has been wrung out so that all that's left is bitter pulp. To judge has a a breadth to its meaning. It does not only mean to condemn. It also means to discern or to see rightly. The unfortunate reality is that the second definition to See rightly, the second definition is almost completely disappeared from contemporary common usage. We only say, don't judge, don't judge, instead of maybe you ought to exercise some judgment. We squeeze that meaning out of the word. Our English word judge comes from two Latin words. Some of you guys know, kind of like Latin. I think it's neat to understand where where words came from. And it just so happens that like almost all of them in English came from Latin. So here we are with the word judge. It turns out that it comes from two words brought together. The word jus, J-U-S, and the word dicere, D-I-C-E-R-E, jus dicere. Use means right or just. Dikere means saying or decision. So what is what does it mean to judge? What is justice? It is a right saying. It is a just decision. 
The root meaning is far closer to the breadth and nuance of meaning of the Greek word that Matthew uses here. Gives us better understanding of what Jesus is getting at. Let me try to paraphrase. Don't presume to think that you have the wisdom, perspective, or righteousness to bring down a right saying or a just decision upon your brother so that you may stand in judgment over him. Don't presume that you have the right saying. Don't presume that you have a just decision and the right, therefore, to stand in judgment over him, especially when you realize that any error you make in your judgment will leave you self-condemned. The difference here is between the exercise of right discernment and wisdom in life and relationships and the presumption that you have the authority to condemn. It's the difference between what one commentator calls moral discernment and personal condemnation. You hear the, the difference? The same commentator writes, Christians can pronounce that is good and that is wrong, but not you are therefore condemned by God. We have not been given that throne to sit on. We have a low throne and we make some good, educated, hopefully faith-filled, clear-seeing decisions, but we have no right to condemn We must ask ourselves, is is judgment, the judgment of condemnation, really what we want anyway? Again, James is a helpful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. James 2, 12, and 13. Here's what he says. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, as a people who have received mercy, you might say. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And I remember the Sermon on the Mount, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I say, that's, that's beautiful. That's excellent. That sounds like maybe what James and Jesus are getting at here. Now, we have this passage, this teaching at the beginning of the section, and then he begins to apply it. He applies it to, uh, with two examples to the family. We'll see what I mean by family in just a moment. But he gives two examples. An example that deals with logs and specks and then pigs and pearls. Look at it with me. Logs and specks. Verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Do you hear what it's talking about? Why do you see the speck that is in whose eye? Just some passerby that you decided to judge with no knowledge at all of him? No. This is, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? This is a family issue that Jesus is addressing. It's one of the first reasons why to apply this particular passage in that general sense alone, non-Christians to Christians or just willy-nilly in the culture, isn't a right application of Jesus' teaching here. He's talking about the judgment of those who are nearby, close even brother. This is a one another passage. This is an intramural question among the believers. The audience that Jesus has in mind with his teaching is the church. It's the disciples. We're not to judge one another with a heart of condemnation. The question is put in two ways in verses 3 and 4. He says it two times, two ways. 
Why do you see what's wrong with your brother, not what's wrong with you? Why, why do you see the speck in his eye and not the log in yours, right? And then, why do you try to fix what's wrong with your brother without fixing what's wrong with you? You see, you don't see what's wrong. And even if you do see what's wrong, you don't do anything about it except for in your brother. The warning is there to elicit humility in the people. Don't you see how foolish hypocrisy looks, he's saying. I mean, you hear it, right? We've heard it before, but do you see it? Can you visualize it with me? Looking for a speck in a brother's eye when you have a, what's the word? Log? A two-by-four? Lumber sticking out your eye? It's foolish. So when he says, oh, hypocrite, in just a moment, like, yeah, that's, that's a good word for it. That's really a foolish, near silly, comedic image. It's glaring. It's obvious. And the only person who doesn't seem to see it is the hypocrite himself. Jesus is teaching us to admit that our sin leaves us to not always see the world as it really is and to look like a fool in the process. Most importantly, we don't always see our sin for what it really is. And so in verse 5, he says something that ought to take us aback. Speaking to the brothers and the way that we treat one another. Speaking to the family, he says in verse 5, Oh, you hypocrite. You hypocrite. Wait a minute. That's being said of the brothers. That's being said of the family. That's being said of the children of the father. You hypocrite. You see, elsewhere, Jesus reserves that accusation to those who do not believe. But let us be aware of how hypocrisy makes its way into the family as well. And so the world is not wrong to look in at us and call us hypocrites and tell us to not judge. It's just they don't have any understanding They have a log sticking out their eye themselves, and they'll be judged by that own measure. But they're not wrong. We have at a minimum a speck in our eye. We're hypocrites, and to be honest, we're walking around with logs sticking out of our eyes. And you can see that, even with a log sticking out your eye yourself. And we're told to do two things in verse 5. Take the log out of your eye, right? Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, and that's the second thing. Take the log out of your eye, and then continue on exercising wisdom and judgment and discernment and the like to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is not a call to perfection, okay? Jesus is not saying that only perfect people can help sinners. What it's a call to is it's a call to humility, It's a call to humility, repentance, and restoration. You see the pattern, right? right, Take take the log out of your own eye. Well, to do that, you have to admit, I think he's talking about me. I think that Jesus sees clearly, and when he looks around, and he looks at me, he sees somebody has something wrong with them. Humility, repentance. God, will you do surgery on me? There's something wrong with me, and it needs fixed. I can't carry on 
like this, in part because, God, you've given me something to do. And that something to do is to be a co-laborer with you in that sort of surgery. That I have a brother and he has a speck in his eye, and I'm not wrong about it. It's a problem. It's just I got this log sticking out of my eye too. Humility, repentance, and then to go and seek restoration of our brother. It's humility. I I remember in this passage, you have a a log out of some people's eye, but you have a speck still in others. And let me tell you right now, the log's a big deal and it's a bit ridiculous. But the speck is a really big deal too. I know so from personal experience. As a child, I had eye surgery. I literally had a speck in my eye. Now, I would love to give you that reality as evidence that I don't have a log in my eye. It's just not on that day. It was actually a speck of rust in my eye, and it was letting in so much light into my inner eye that I was literally blinded by the light. Literally. Even with my eyelid closed, I could see a All that I could see was a brilliant, bright red light that was blinding with my eye closed. I was brought to the surgeon, and he gently removed the speck of rust from my eye. Let me tell you, first of all, it's not like, I only have a speck, don't worry about it. It's a big problem. We have a responsibility, a love-laden responsibility to begin with humility, to move to repentance, and then to go and restore our brother and say, brother, you've got a speck in your eye, and it's not good. But I can tell you one thing, two things that I'm thankful for. I'm thankful that the surgeon on that day, when I had a speck in my eye, that he did the surgery, that he was so humble that he couldn't take the speck out of my eye. Surely he has something wrong with his vision as well. It turned out, I have a problem, eye problem myself, the doctor says. No, I'm glad he did the surgery. But I'm also glad that he worked gently. Listen to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, it doesn't say only log-like transgression, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is a law of liberty. It's a law of grace. It's a law of restoration and redemption. I'm glad that he did the work with a spirit of gentleness. He was careful because he knew that he must see clearly through the magnifying glass and that his hand must be steady. Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons why we are careful in humility and repentance and repetitive in humility and repentance is not just so we can get our act together, but as an act of love for the brothers and sisters that are around us. It's why discipleship, a faithful pursuit of Christ, is actually a love for your neighbor. That doctor was careful on that day. That doctor was gentle on that day. But he practiced his art. Love among the family of faith does not desire to condemn the brothers and sisters. Love bears with one another while enduring with long-suffering hope. I'm reminded of the beginning 
of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember what's held out as blessed, as a beautiful way of the kingdom. You remember it's those who have a poverty of spirit, who have the humility to realize that they're broken, right? Who mourn their own sin, who walk with a meekness among the family, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can see that it's a, it's a whole message. It's a, a whole sermon and it holds together even as he preaches this difficult saying for us today. It's a sort of humility and faith that enables us to see the family, our brothers and sisters rightly, to judge rightly what is wrong and right without condemnation, but with gentleness, with a hope for restoration that the gospel brings both to our souls and to the souls of our neighbors. You see, we can see it. We can see the speck and we can see it's a problem. And we can see that it leaves our brothers and sisters spiritually blind, but our longing is not to condemn. Our longing is to restore. God receives all the glory because he is the restorer. Now, interestingly, that's only the first Little example that he gives. Actually, verse 6, I believe, is part of the whole of Jesus' teaching here. Look at it with me. Verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I'll tell you, Jesus has used vivid imagery throughout the whole of the sermon, and this is just another very good example. Jesus has warned the disciples not to judge their brothers, let us remember that the brothers, you got to get in the context, hear what Jesus is actually saying and to whom he says it the first time so we can understand what he's teaching to us yet today. When he's speaking to the brothers, he's speaking to disciples who are brothers with all of the religious Jewish people around them who are still rejecting the Messiah. So how are the disciples of Jesus to relate to their brothers who are rejecting Jesus? Well, are they supposed to judge not? I mean, maybe they're on to something. Are they supposed to fearfully wonder? Perhaps the Pharisees and the religious rulers who are rejecting Jesus are right and the followers of Jesus are wrong. Are they supposed to exercise that sort of humility? Is that what it means? Judge not? Don't even hold a conviction about what is true regarding Religious and spiritual things? Is that what he's calling them to? No. no. Jesus is bringing a nuance with his teaching in verse 6. A, Nietzsche, a, a nuance to his teaching on judgment by offering a corollary teaching to his disciples as they sat before him on that mount on that day. There are those who are once among you, he's telling them, who were identified as your brothers, but in rejecting the Messiah, they are no longer Brothers, practically, this is what he's telling him. Let us be very clear. He is not telling them to kick the dogs and kill the pigs. He's using a metaphor and it communicates and it's severe, but he does not say kick the dogs and kill the pigs. This is not the way of Jesus. It's not the teaching of Jesus. We have to, to, to make a travesty of what he's communicating here we have to really you got to look at this whole passage with a log in your eye to get that out of it it's to wrongly this passage has been used to wrongly vilify jewish people and others who don't believe throughout history to kick and to kill he's not saying 
that it, it's a worthless people. Here's what he's communicating. He's saying that it's a worthless wrangling to enter into arguments with those who have clearly rejected the Messiah and the gospel of his kingdom. He's not speaking about worthless people. He's speaking about a worthless argument. The pearl is the teaching of Jesus. But if one has rejected the teaching, that pearl has become worthless and trampled by him. And so to wrangle, to argue with one who has chosen to reject the word is to profane the holy teachings of Jesus. Let's be clear. The business of the disciple of Jesus is to preach, to proclaim, to persuade, and perhaps more compellingly to be transformed and to love and to be patient, but not to argue, not to badger. Such wrangling is a profane casting of pearls before swine. Listen to Matthew 10, 14. It gives us an example of a time that Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the gospel among the the towns of the Jews. And as they went, many believed. But here's his counsel as they would go. Jesus in Matthew 10, 14, gives this instruction. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Jesus does not the one who proclaims the gospel to become a meaningless, argumentative babbler among those who have clearly rejected the Messiah. I love this passage because when it's taken together, it begins to nuance itself. It begins to instruct us in a wisdom that is not just a simple, short, pithy statement. But it actually begins to correct us and offer a humility that perhaps there are some things that I do not yet understand. Particularly so far we've seen things that we don't understand about the nature of our relationship with our brothers as it regards judgment. But now let us consider, beginning in verse 7, the nature of our relationship with the Father. Chapters 5 and 6 had many difficult teachings, teachings about anger and lust and divorce and hypocrisy. Matthew 6.32 then offers this consolation. Your heavenly Father knows what you need, so seek him. Kindness. Then we're told, don't judge. You've got a plank sticking out of your eye, a difficult teaching to swallow, a difficult teaching to understand and to apply. And then we get to Matthew seven ten, and it says, your father who is in heaven gives good things. I'd argue that in many ways, what Jesus is doing here is he's offering a comfort to a people who have been hit hard with a difficult teaching. For you who cannot see, he's saying, the father provides. Verses 7 and 8, ask, seek, knock, receive, find, and open. The question I have, verse 7, why? Why do they receive? Is it because of their persistency? Is it because you sought diligently? Is it because you knocked loudly that the father finally woke up, got off the couch, and walked to the door? No, because your Father who is in heaven gives good things. That's why. I've heard this passage preached as as an argument to, to ask more fervently, 
to seek more diligently, to knock louder on the door of heaven. And one of these days, if you smack hard enough, God will wake up and do something good for you. Is that what the passage even says? So look, if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, there is a good father. And he gives. The emphasis isn't upon some technique for seeking. The emphasis is upon the character and the nature of the father. Bottom line is this. It's a call to faith in who he is and what he's like. It's a call to see the world rightly. To see that the world has a good father in heaven. Now that father is the judge, but he's a good judge. And he is judged with a law of liberty, as James calls it. He is judged with grace for all who would see rightly and place their faith in him. It's a call to faith in who he is and what he's like. Remember, the whole of the sermon describes the way of the king, and it turns out that the way of the king is good and generous. We should not be surprised. So, how do we ask, seek, and knock continually if the point is not to ask so much that he finally gives in and to seek so hard that we finally find it? How do we do it continually? Interestingly, I would argue that our asking, seeking, and knocking is not finally a behavior. It isn't something that we do to finally get noticed by a negligent father. It's something that we finally notice about a good God. We notice that he's good, and so we ask. We begin to to have right eyes with the specks and logs of sin removed by the gracious sending of a brother. We used to say, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. And then finally, the work of restoration, we saw, oh, I get it. I was wrong. And I myself have something to repent of, including my telling you, don't judge. Don't judge. You were restoring me. And we begin to see that God has been good even when we weren't asking and when we were trying to send him away. And what we do is we don't knock harder or seek more diligently. We fight for faith to believe that his provision, no matter what it is, is good for his people because he is good. We're free to ask again. We're even told to pray daily and at all times. We're even given a prayer to pray. But we must not believe that asking somehow has changed God from stingy to generous, from unsure of what we need to good and generous because we finally told him and the message got through. James, again, offers a corrective for us here. James 4, 2 and 3. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. You see that? It is possible to ask and not receive. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. God's good. Sometimes he does not give us what would destroy us or give us a clouded vision of his glory. You see, persistence in asking doesn't change the problem with why we don't receive. We don't see rightly. We don't have a right vision of the Father and we don't have a right vision of his way. So what is it that we are seeking? Is it... That God is there, I am here, and here's what I want, and so I tell him about it. Oh, the asking, the seeking, the knocking is on the very door of heaven that we might see God. If we see him, we 
You've seen his kingdom and his way and his provision and his glory. Jesus is asking us to apply his teaching on judgment also to God. You see this? Judge not that you be not judged. Don't judge God. Don't see him wrongly. Don't rightly discern wrongly about who God is. What is his nature? When we face difficulty or trial, we ought not to think of ourselves, God has abandoned me. The Father has not been good to me. We must confess that we may not have eyes to see clearly. We may not have a right view of reality. We may have sin that is an impediment to us so that we are acting more like rebels than children. We ought not to judge our brothers and sisters, but we ought not also to judge God. Rather, in both cases, we ought to have the eyes of faith. We ought to have the scriptures tell us what is true and then believe it. Now, Verse 12, this perhaps might be one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. If it's not the most well-known Scripture, perhaps it's the most well-known by parents who are trying to tell their kids how to behave. Now, we've heard the instruction, do not judge, do not condemn. We've been warned that our own sin may cause us not to see rightly. We've been reminded that God is our good and generous Father. And here he gives us a summary of what he's teaching us. Now, in light of this, having our vision corrected, how might we live? Is there any summary statement given the goodness and glory of our sovereign that might give us direction in how to live and how to relate to one another? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, what are we to take from this? If if we do this, will we be judged righteous? If we take that little statement, pull it out from the scriptures and say, well, he said, that's a great summary. So what we're going to do, church, is I'm going to lay that on you as a new law. Now go and treat others the way that you want to be treated. All right? Obey that and you will be judged righteous. Is perfection and salvation just on the other side of this rule, just on the other side of this law? And the answer, friends, is absolutely not. This if it's a law, is no comfort or encouragement at all. It's not encouragement, it's judgment. If this were Jesus' intention, to give us a law, it would hang like a weight around our neck and it would carry us all the way to the bottom of the sea. Have you ever done this? Have you ever even tried to do this? No one could ever survive this standard as a law, and it's part of the point of Jesus. You can't survive this as a standard of law by which to declare yourself self-righteous, log and speck removed, and then you can join him in his judgment seat. But we can agree that, Lord, it's beautiful. Now, it judges me, but I agree that's, that'd be a nice place to live. I, in fact, That would be a nice way to be. It's beautiful. The way of the king and his kingdom is beautiful. But even as we agree that this rule is golden, 
Even as we agree that it shines, it's radiant, it's clear, and it's valuable, we're self-condemned because we do not live up to the standard of its righteousness. So, what if, as one commentator puts it, what if the golden rule is not so much a rule except for to give us the standard of God's beautiful holiness and the way of the beauty of his kingdom? What if it's not so much a rule as a vision? What if this were the golden vision? It describes a glorious way that even as we seek it and fail to obtain it, causes us to cry out to the good Father, make your kingdom come. Not because as I get better at this, I make your kingdom come. And as we, we're going to be the church that nails this one. In fact, we're going to make it our vision statement. Now, not, not as we obey a law that we would make your kingdom come, but God, as we, as we see it's beautiful and so walk in it, our cry is reign. Be king. Be the present father. And friends, that ask, that seek, that knock is being answered by the glory of his grace. We begin with a confession. I've got a log in my eye. My spirit's impoverished and I don't have a righteousness that's my own. But you've given me a new eye to see. What I see is not my own righteousness, but I see yours. And I see it being described right here in verse 12. That's Beautiful. That is your glorious way. I see the glory of a king, and I see the beauty of a kingdom way. I'll seek. I'll make every effort to walk in it. I'll seek. I'll ask. I'll knock. But the only way I'll ever enter is grace. And this is the gospel. There isn't a person in this room that doesn't have a log sticking out of his eye. Romans three twenty three and through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, notice where it's not, it's not found in my ability to fulfill the vision. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, he's speaking about the cross, to receive by faith, not by works. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The judge himself had not acted as judged, as judge. The whole time he saw it. And he could have come at any moment in absolute condemnation against rebels, but he passed over former sins and he kept doing so. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. And what is the present time but the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus? So that he might be Just. Oh, he hasn't given up on that. He's still the judge. But that he might also be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus is just. Do you know why? Because he's judge. And he sees rightly and brings judgment upon the condemned. That's his job, and he does it well. But Jesus is also justifier. He does perfect surgery. He who sees sin for what it is, and forgiven by means of his own sacrificial grace, has not brought condemnation upon us, but upon himself. And so all who believe, who have faith in Jesus, are not condemned, but are justified. You see, we get to walk around and declare that. We get to see rightly, sin for what it is, and declare grace. 
and call out for grace and call out repentance in ourselves and in others, but without fear, because we have not only the just, we have the justifier. Why do we not judge? Why do we not condemn? Because we have been shown our sin and we have been shown mercy. This morning, I would call you to believe. I would call you to see rightly that your own sin and the sin around you is rebellion against a good God. And to call you to see that our God is both judge and savior, him who is able to save and to condemn. And all who believe and are forgiven by the grace of the cross will not approach a throne of judgment. But we get to approach a throne of grace. Friends, that's why we judge not. Because we get to be a people who see it for what it is. We get to see rebellion in ourselves and in those around us for what it is. And preach the power of grace to forgive, to restore, to redeem, and set on a new way. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. There is so much more in these verses than we have even considered today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work among your church today in this song, in communion, in the coming week, perhaps one in this room has been deeply wrong. They have judged out loud or in their heart another, even in this room. And they know what your word says, to go and be restored. And so even instead of communion, there's a prayer that needs to be prayed. There's a, a word of confession and forgiveness that gets to be had between one another. Lord, make us love what communion stands for, your, the reality and the sacrifice by means of which we know your grace. Make that work among your people this morning. Work in our households and overflow into something the world has not yet seen. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things in the name of our Savior and our Judge justifier. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.